Our sermon text this morning is 2 Samuel 20. The verses that we'll read will be up here on the overhead and you can follow along. And there happened to be a rebel whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjamite. And he blew a trumpet and said, We have no share in David, nor do we have inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tent, O Israel. So every man of Israel deserted David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah from Jordan as far as Jerusalem remained loyal to their king. Now David had come to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the concubines who he had left to keep the house and put them in seclusion and supported them, but did not go into them. So they were shut up to the day of their death, living in widowhood. And the king said to Amasa, Assemble the men of Judah for me within three days, and be present here yourself. So Amasa went to assemble the men of Judah, but he delayed longer than the set time which David had appointed him. And David said to Abishai, Now Sheba the son of Bichri will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he find for himself fortified cities and escape us. So Joab's men went out after him, and they went out of Jerusalem to pursue Sheba the son of Bichri. When they were at the large stone which is in Gibeon, Amasa came before them. Now Joab was dressed in battle armor, and on it was a belt with a sword fastened in its sheath at his hips. And as he was going forward, it fell out. Then Joab said to Amasa, Are you in health, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not notice the sword that was in Joab's hand. And he struck him with it in the stomach, and his entrails poured out on the ground, and he did not strike him again. Thus he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba the son of Bichri. And they went through all the tribes of Israel to Abel and Bethmeacah and all the Beerites. Then they came and besieged him in Abel of Bethmeacah. They set up a siege mound against the city and stood by the rampart. And all the people who were with Joab battered the wall to throw it down. Then a wise woman cried out of the city, Hear, hear, please say to Joab, come nearby that I may speak with you. So the woman said to Joab, Watch, his head will be thrown to you over the wall. Then the woman in her wisdom went to all the people and they cut off the head of Sheba the son of Bichri and threw it out to Joab. Then he blew a trumpet and they withdrew from the city. Every man to his tent. So Joab returned to the king at Jerusalem. We'll call the kids to the front now for their children's sermon. In the Bible story we read today, we see how God uses problems and troubles in our lives in order to teach us to repent of our sins. Do you know what repent means? It means more than being sorry for doing something wrong. Now, it does mean that you're sorry, but it means something more than that. It means that you have understood that the thing is wrong, and now your mind has changed about it. You understand how much it displeases God, and since you love God and want to please Him, you learn to hate the sinful thing because God hates it. That's what repent means. A few minutes ago, we read about the preacher John who told his listeners, bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. And that means to live as if you are sorry. You see, if I, if I stepped on your foot and said, I'm sorry, and then every minute or so I stepped on it again and again and again and again, you're going to think I'm not sorry. If we argued about it and I said, I am sorry, you'd go, if you were sorry, you'd stop doing it. You'd quit. Isn't that right? Well, all the problems that we've seen in David's life go back to one thing. Way back when he first became king, he sinned greatly against God by taking more than one wife. God's law says very clearly, 
that a man may only take one wife. But David was behaving like the godless kings of the nations around Israel. Those guys all wanted to show how great and powerful they were and that they could just do whatever they wanted and no one could stop them because I'm rich and I'm the king and I can do what I want. David copied this sinful attitude. In our story this morning, we see a man named Sheba start another rebellion against David. War has just ended for David. David's enemy, his own son Absalom, has died and David has been restored to his throne as king and right away this man leads another rebellion. Now that tells us that the reason for the problem has not been fixed. If your kitchen floor has a puddle of water in the middle and you clean up the water and the next morning there's a puddle of water again, something's wrong. Your dad looks under the sink and finds that there's a leak. But he just cleans up the puddle and doesn't fix the leak. What will happen? Every day there will be a puddle of water in the kitchen. Until that pipe gets fixed, it will always leak. In a similar way, David's kingdom is again facing a rebellion. So he knows that the leak, the real problem, hasn't been fixed. And right in the middle of the story about David sending soldiers to hunt down Sheba, we read about David putting away his many wives. And as soon as he does this, the problem with Sheba ends. Sheba had hidden in a city called Abel Beth Meacah. He thought he had so many followers there that they would protect him. He was wrong. And even if they had wanted to protect him, God wasn't protecting him. God was protecting David. When David's men got to the city, they didn't even have to fight. The people of Beth Meacah killed Sheba, and to prove it, they threw his head over the wall to David's men. War is frightening and cruel, but God's hand was in this. David had repented of his wicked sin, and God was blessing his kingdom again with peace. Do you remember the story of the Philistine idol god Dagon? When God's ark was placed in Dagon's temple, what happened? God knocked Dagon's head off. No false god can stand before the true God. In a very similar way, that's what we see with Sheba. David is a picture lesson to us of Jesus ruling his church as king. Sheba was a rebel then against Jesus. And how did Jesus deal with him? The same way he dealt with Dagon. I want you to pay close attention to the rest of the sermon because we'll talk more about that thing in particular more about all these things. The Bible has many stories like this. After we pray, you can return to your seats. Great peace have they that love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. Dear Lord, increase our love to thy word, which the angels desire to look into, and make our souls pliable and submissive to be ruled and turned by it, until we become in all things agreeable to it. Amen. Our outline this morning runs as follows. Number one, rebellion continued. Number two, moral house cleaning. And number three, rebellion squelched. Rebellion continued. If you'll remember, chapter 19 ended with a quarrel between the tribes about who should take the lead in bringing David back. We noted that this is a common feature among reform movements, especially traditionalist movements of a dissident nature. Each group sees itself as the only true torchbearers. Among those who are right, we are more right than everyone else. Now, the quarrel was about whether Judah, as David's kin, 
should have led the nation in restoring him to the throne, or whether the other tribes, because of their sheer superior numbers, should have. It's shallow and petty, of course, and at the end of the day, who cares, right? But there is something presupposed by both sides, which is their rationale. Each side sees themselves as having preeminence over the other side because of their particular relationship to the king. They felt that their relationship to David lent them clout. Another thing that typically happens, and I think this, is, this incident belongs in this category, is that resentment lingers on when one side of a conflict doesn't get its way. And it's not always a conflict. Sometimes it's just a mere decision. For instance, a church needs to vote on something, and usually we're, we're understanding and mature enough to accept the majority vote, but sometimes resentment lingers among those who were outvoted, and in our text, we see that resentment turn into action. As a rule, I don't talk about myself in sermons. I'm going to break that rule this morning for a very specific point. When the congregational vote was held three years ago, to vote whether or not to call me as your pastor, I'm not naive enough to think that everybody voted yes. And I'll tell you what I've told many people since. At the end of the service, I stood at the back of the sanctuary and shook hands with everyone present that morning. Every single person who was here that day shook my hand, looked me in the eye, and said, Welcome to Freedom's Reformed Church. Try as I might, I would never have been able to guess who voted no. That's, that's what I'm getting at. Generally, people accept decisions when they're made according to the accepted procedures. But in the case of Sheba, what we have is someone who wasn't satisfied with the procedure. Sheba, like Shimei, is a cousin to King Saul. And his actions tell us something about the mindset behind this quarrel among the tribes. Now, Judah might not have imagined that their biological relation to David gave them some special status in the kingdom, but Sheba clearly understood it that way. He was from Benjamin, Saul's tribe, and he clearly felt slighted at not having the kind of clout that he used to have or he should have had being kin to the king. Let's say something about Sheba personally. In describing a person's character, it is a common, it was a common Hebrew idiom to call them sons of a particular trait. For instance, Jesus called two of his disciples sons of thunder. In Acts 4.36, the Cypriot disciple Joseph is nicknamed Barnabas, and that's the name we know him by, and Barnabas means son of encouragement. Scripture frequently calls troublemakers and rebels sons of Belial. Belial means worthlessness, and it means worthlessness in the sense of worn out, tired, threadbare. You know, like when an 18-wheeler tosses a, a tire on the highway, if you collected all the shreds of rubber and tried to superglue them back together, the end result would be Belial, utterly worthless. To call someone a son of Belial is to say that they are utterly without use, without purpose to the betterment of the church or society, which in Old Testament Israel was one and the same thing. It's characteristic of Scripture to use the phrase sons of Belial when it's talking about men who are morally and spiritually worthless. Men who are scoundrels, drunks, derelicts would be labeled sons of Belial in the Bible. 
But in the case of Sheba, he is not a mere son of Belial. Our English Bible calls him a rebel. The Hebrew is literally a man of Belial. He's not just a mere son of Belial. He's full grown. The nasty epithet is a judgment on his character. The church has just literally just concluded an ugly civil war. And instead of taking part of the healing, he uses the loose ends that haven't been tied up yet to his own advantage. And it's not even clear what his intentions were. He never appears to have declared himself king. He merely wants to lead a revolt against David for not giving him at least the nepotistic benefits he thought he deserved. The legitimacy of David's reign has never been questioned. And in fact, it really isn't even questioned here. What's at stake here is access to illegitimate privileges. Many in Israel, it seems, still grossly misunderstood the nature of the church. They thought of it as functioning on the principle of nepotism. Well, I'm a cousin, therefore I should be able to, you know, whatever. The kingdom of God doesn't function that way. All God's people are God's children. God does not have grandchildren. This is what Paul is referring to in Romans 9 where he writes, For they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children. Membership in the church has always been on the basis of faith in Christ. That faith is uh, as a rule, passed down in the line of generations, but biological descent is not the deciding factor. When men think of their religion in this way, they always view salvation as a result of works. Keeping in mind that David is a foreshadowing of Christ, I think you'll see what I mean. Both sides are claiming to have a more genuine relationship with David based on the fervency of their works during the recent war. I was more loyal to you. Therefore, I'm more worthy to be in David's inner circle. This is the childish behavior of men who think they can earn their salvation by their works. They're assessing their relationship to Christ on the basis of what they have done, how they've served his cause. Some things never change. Even among churchmen whose doctrinal standards are solid confessions, such as the Heidelberg Catechism or Belgic Confession or Westminster Confession of Faith, men still think that their access to the blessings of the covenant depends upon themselves and their acts of service and faithfulness. No, my friends, that's false. The restoration of the kingdom to David was the work of Almighty God, not the work of petty partisan Davidists. They hadn't put David on the throne, neither did they preserve him on the throne. Christ says, I will build my kingdom. He doesn't say, you guys build it for me and I'll be eternally in your debt. But then suddenly, right out of the blue, just like this comment, while Scripture is telling us about Sheba's rebellion, Scripture wedges another account right into the middle of the narrative. And that's our second point, moral house cleaning. Scripture often directs us as to how we should understand or view historical events by the location in which it places them in the larger narrative. This whole chapter is about the restoration of the kingdom, the very quick rise and fall of Sheba's rebellion, and then at the end of the chapter there's a list of the great heroes of David's army. All of this tells us about the restoration of the kingdom and couched 
right in the middle is this brief account of something about David's multiple wives. In fact, the account of Sheba's rebellion is interrupted by this. You know, it's almost like you're listening to a song and then halfway through, another song cuts in for a minute and then it goes back to the first one. This tells us that the issue with the concubines was part of the moral house cleaning involved in restoring David to the throne. It appears that David has finally come to terms with the sinfulness of his behavior in this regard. The scripture tells us that it was done by David simultaneous with the rebellion of Sheba. That is significant. There is a huge moral crisis in the land and in all honesty, it traces its roots here. David committed the sin of polygamy. And the moral laxness required to engage in that sin led him to the further sin of murdering Uriah for his wife. Later, when David's son Amnon engaged in unspeakable immorality, David felt hamstrung to do anything about it. You know know what I mean, right? Uh, Where do you get off punishing me? You do it too. Because David didn't deal with Amnon's crime, Absalom sinfully took matters into his own hands, and that set the train in motion that leads us right here. Now, Absalom may be dead and his rebellion may be over, but until the source of the problem, the leak under the kitchen sink, so to speak, until that problem is publicly addressed, things will simply repeat. And therefore, David ends the polygamous lifestyle, and he does so abruptly. The other women, we're told, were secluded. That seems a bit harsh to our 21st century sensibilities, but it is entirely in keeping with the morality preached by Scripture. You might be inclined to ask, why couldn't they have simply been released and allowed to to marry and have their own lives and families? I think the answer Scripture would give us is, will not the land be polluted? God ordained that marriage serve as a picture of the relationship that obtains between Christ and His church. If David had sent these women out into the world to be taken as other men's wives after he had lain carnally with them, that would be a desecration of marriage. It would pollute the land. It would promote promiscuity and moral laxness in the church. It's easy to question that decision, but doing so overlooks the monumental change in David's behavior. Gone! are the multiple wives. Bathsheba stays as his wife because she's the mother of Solomon, whom God has chosen to succeed David as king. Whatever the circumstances may have been with regard to the other women that David had married, I think it's clear that he had great moral responsibility to Bathsheba because he'd he'd killed her husband and had harmed her reputation. This was a pickle. David would no longer lie with them, but neither could they simply just go out and be another man's wife. Hence, the only workable solution was that they were to be treated as widows who were provided for out of the king's budget. He had to house and feed them all for the rest of his life. He took full financial responsibility for their welfare as long as he lived. That was the least he could do considering how he had morally compromised them all. Now, the odd placement of this account tells us how we are to view it. It's part of the moral cleanup. As strange as it may seem to us, we have to admire the fact that David took full responsibility. And he did not argue, hey, I'm paying housing, food, and utilities. I think I'm entitled to a a little something. True repentance never seeks for exemptions. If this is wrong, according to the law of God, then it must be stopped. The fact that I've engaged in this sin for 40 years is irrelevant. 
If you take a wrong turn, you will not get to your destination by pressing on in the wrong direction. You have to go back where the error occurred and change course there. From now on, David is going to have to swallow his pride, and he's going to have to live with the expense, that is to say, the results of having sinned this way. Sin is costly. From now on, the only wife ever mentioned is Bathsheba. Now, let me say something important here. Scripture tells us bad company corrupts good character. Of course, you know that that's referring to the power of bad influences. We, we warn our kids to stay away from certain people because they're a bad influence. But Scripture teaches something even deeper. In Haggai 2, we see a principle argued on the basis of the ceremonial laws about cleanness. If a priest were carrying holy meat from a sacrifice and then he bumped into something, the cleanness wouldn't transfer to the item he bumped into. However, if he bumped into something unclean, the uncleanness would transfer to him. This depicts the corrupting power of sin. Holiness isn't transferable. Unholiness is. Sin is contagious like a disease. That's why the Bible likens it to leaven. It spreads through everything it touches. Now here's some quick examples. Abraham lied about his wife and said she was his sister. You remember that? There's no doubt that Abraham repented of this sin. He gravely endangered his future in the covenant by it. If Pharaoh had taken Sarah and she had conceived, there'd be no way for Abraham to know if a child born to her was his or Pharaoh's. There's no doubt that Abraham repented of this sin and regretted it deeply. A generation later, though, we find Isaac lying about his wife. Of all the things he could have copied from his dad, faithful Abraham, he chose that. Jacob deceived his father, Isaac. And though we can have no doubt that he deeply regretted having done so, and he must have taught his children about it, later we find them practicing deceit upon him. You see what I mean? There's no doubt that David repented of the sin. The proof is that he brought forth fruits in keeping with repentance. He ended the illicit relationships and took full responsibility for the results. And yet, of all the things that Solomon could have copied from David, he chose this, the ugliest, most repugnant thing his father ever did. Later in Judah's history, we find King Manasseh engaged in idolatry. God chastens him severely, and he repents of his sin. You can read about it in 2 Chronicles 33. As a as fruit of his repentance, he tore down all the altars that he had erected in Jerusalem. He repaired the walls of the city as if to keep the outside corrupting influence of the world from sneaking into his kingdom. And yet for all that, here's how scripture describes his son Ammon. Ammon did evil in the sight of the Lord as his father Manasseh had done, and he did not humble himself before the Lord as his father Manasseh had humbled himself. Is this not a grave warning for parents? I've known many cases of, of children committing the same sins their parents had committed once upon a time. I have seen parents with tears in their eyes recount regretful tales of the sins of their past only to see their children later commit the exact same sins. That was very, very late in the game and a lot of damage, irreparable damage had already been done, but David doesn't say, I oh, can't do nothing about it now. 
When you set about to clean up a mess, you don't wait for it to get bigger. David understood that sin must be cut off. It didn't matter how big of an embarrassment it would be for him. He represented God. All the disaster that we've seen in David's life was a result of this very sin. David knows it. And he doesn't say, well, it's too late to do anything about it now. That doesn't matter. It was sin and it had to be stopped, period. The scripture breaks into this account of Sheba's rebellion to tell us this because it's the explanation for the successful resolution of the crisis. A lot of really shady things happen among David's men as they clean up the the Sheba mess, but God overrules it all to protect David. And that's our third point, rebellion squelched. David sent Amasa to gather men to deal with Sheba, and Amasa took longer than the time allotted by David, and David viewed this as a sign of incompetence, and so he sent Abishai, Joab's brother, to do what Amasa had failed to do. Joab, of course, sees this as an opportunity to get back into David's good graces. He and Abishai track Sheba down to a city called Abel Beth and while they're still a good ways off, Amasa and his band of men show up. Joab's violently impulsive nature gets the best of him. He goes up to greet Amasa with the Mediterranean customary kiss. It's really just touching cheek to cheek. These guys are big burly soldiers, so Joab grabs Amasa by the beard to pull him in, to greet him. And Amasa doesn't notice that Joab has, is unsheathing his sword with the free hand. And Joab stabs Amasa, as the Hebrew says, under the fifth rib. One fatal wound. Joab's the boss again. Of course, we find out later that this act earns Joab the death penalty. David's charge to Solomon is that Joab has shed the blood of war in peacetime. This is cold-blooded murder, and it cannot be passed over as David had done with Joab's murder of Abner. Now, Joab and his army proceed to set up siege works against the city of Abel Beth Maacah, and this obviously got the attention of the residents who can't imagine what they've done. Now, that tells us that Sheba overestimated his safety. He didn't have as much support as he imagined. The residents send out a delegation to meet with Joab. It's a little old lady, but she's the kind of little old lady with a reputation for solving difficult problems. She pleads with Joab, asking, what, 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 what could have one person in our city have done to merit the death of the whole place? Of course, Joab is proceeding as if the town were providing shelter to Joab. The question, of course, proves that that might not be the case. So Joab tells her, we just want Sheba. If you turn him over to us, we'll leave without incident. Now, if you are harboring him, we'll raise this place to the ground. Surely you can't argue with that. So she asks for a little time, and all of a sudden, here comes Sheba's head flying over the wall, and that ends it. Joab keeps his word and leaves. Sheba is one example in a long list of enemies of Christ who die by blows to the head. This event is foreshadowing the first gospel promise from Genesis 3 about the seed of the woman woman bruising the head of the seed of the serpent. That very first gospel promise in Genesis 3.15 reads, 
I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That promise foretells that whatever the success the devil may have against Christ and his church, Christ will ultimately crush the devil's head. When I preached on chapter 5 of 1 Samuel, where Dagon gets his head knocked off, I noted how often in the Bible God's enemies receive deadly blows to the head. In Judges 4, Jael drives a tent stake through Sisera's head. In Judges 9, a woman drops a millstone on Abimelech's head. In 1 Samuel 17, Goliath is felled by a rock between the eyes. In 2 Samuel 18, Absalom's rebellion ends when his head gets stuck in a tree branch. And here in 2 Samuel 20, Sheba's head is cut off by the people of Abel Beth Maaka. All these head wounds are so many foreshadowings of Christ's victory over the devil. God is reminding his people of the great Genesis 3 promise and reminding the devil that his goose is cooked. I want to conclude by reading what God declares in Isaiah 48, verses 8 through 11. I knew that you would deal very treacherously and were called a transgressor from the womb. For my name's sake, I will defer my anger, and for my praise, I will restrain it from you so that I do not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I will do it. For how should my name be profaned? I will not give my glory to another. The principle stated in that passage explains everything we have read. Not just in today's text, but in every text we've read since we began this series. All Scripture is a revelation of God's grace in the mediator. God acts for His own name's sake. The actions that we should be noticing in these stories are not the actions of the men in the stories because Scripture is an account of God's acts, not men's. When God preserved David, it wasn't because David deserved it. When God used David to rescue Israel from the hand of the Philistines, it wasn't because they deserved rescue. God preserved David from the hand of Saul, from the hand of Goliath, from the hand of Absalom, from the hand of Sheba, from the rashness of Joab, and from the sin of polygamy for the sake of Jesus, David's greater son. God saves every one of his children for his own sake. Therefore, the song of the redeemed is, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory. Let us pray.